episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Mike Mendel, who is a professor of animal behavior and welfare at the Bristol Veterinary School at the University of Bristol in the UK. Welcome, Mike. Hi, nice to be with you. Yes, really looking forward to today's podcast, all about animal welfare, about behavior, about emotion, cognition, and all the other amazing work that you and colleagues all over the world are doing. So some of you listening might have already heard of work that you have done, but for those that are new, can you please do a short introduction to yourself? Yes, so I'm a behavioral biologist by training. So I did a degree in natural sciences, um, zoology many years ago now. And I was working in the area of animal behavior and behavioral development. And after a couple of postdocs, I moved to focus more on welfare, animal welfare, um, when I worked with Professor Don Broom at Cambridge Vet School. And over the years, I've um, increased the work in the welfare area moving to Scotland to work in the Scottish Agricultural College on pig behaviour and welfare, and then in 1997 to Bristol University, where I'm uh, now based. And around that time, uh, started to focus more on the issue of assessment of animal welfare, and in particular, assessing animal emotions, because um, I and I think many others think that um, the animal's emotional or affective state is a key determinant of its welfare. So that if we're able to, if we're able to measure um, affective states and emotions in some sort of scientific way, we can start then get an insight into welfare through that route. Yes. So for those who are not necessarily um, aware of, you know, how do you actually, you know, get into this field of animal behavior and welfare, you came from a behavioral biologist background and in a couple of postdocs. What are some of the other ways that people can get started into this field of animal welfare and behavior? Yeah, so I guess I came through quite a conventional route, if you like. So I did a PhD and then I did a couple of postdocs before getting um, first more permanent job in, in the Scottish Agricultural College. Um, other ways that people get into this area, I guess, are through joining um, research projects as technical staff, perhaps, or research assistants, and through that route, developing uh, a background of um, experience and also publications. So if we're thinking about the academic animal welfare uh, route, where you become a, a, a staff member at university, then that's an alternative way in, although often PhDs are um, pretty important. But I know that I know many, um, several people who've done non-PhD routes. In other words, they've um, published things as technicians or research assistants without actually getting a formal PhD and have um, got into positions through that route. So, so that's an alternative. So if you're thinking about the academic route, there are, there are a few alternatives, but I guess doing a PhD is the first critical step and then Usually it involves postdocs after that, where you're doing research, often for someone else or with a fellowship. Um, and then uh, if you're lucky, and if the timing's right, then a job you can apply for comes up and, and you can move into that. Yes, wonderful. We'll make sure to, of course, link to the University of Bristol for people wanting to know more about all the different, you know, areas of study and veterinary science and so on that you could you know, explore and study, of course, at the University of Bristol. And you have a background in a wide variety of topics, as you already mentioned. Can you talk a little bit to, you know, how you and your collaborators are studying emotion or, you know, even starting with some of the definitions or descriptions of, you know, emotions and mood and what welfare is and all these different topics? 
Yeah, so that's, I guess, a, a very uh, big area. And I guess when I moved into animal welfare research, um, there were various ways of thinking about what welfare is. And there are there's a number of different sort of frameworks in which one can think about animal welfare. One of those is to think about animal welfare in terms of whether it's to do with how well the animal is functioning biologically or whether it's to do with um, how the animal's able to express its natural behavior, so its freedom to express and behave norm normally. And the third one is to do with what the animal's feeling, um, its affective states uh, um, or emotional states. And increasingly, I think there's been a degree of consensus, not everyone will agree with this, but um, feelings are very key. So if we think about why people are concerned about animal welfare, it's often because they're concerned that animals are able to suffer in some ways, or the species of, of interest is able to suffer in some ways. Um, for example, we don't have um, concerns about plant welfare, um, who, although they may be treated in rather unusual ways and grown in intensive conditions and so on, we don't think they can suffer in the same way that an animal can. So something about the animal's experience, the able, uh, able to experience um, negative emotional states, pain, hunger, thirst, anxiety, and so on, I think are quite central to why people are concerned about animal welfare. So we've sort of followed this, um, this direction of, of, of thinking of animal welfare in those terms, but that then raises the question of what do we actually mean by uh, emotion and uh, mood or affective state? And how do we actually try and measure that? So that's quite a complicated set of questions. Um, so I think our reference point is human psychology, because that's where most study has been done of emotions in a scientific context. And the current view is that emotion, emotional states are states which are ultimately positive or negative, rewarding or punishing, um, uh, painful, non-painful, pleasurable, unpleasurable. So they have this positive negative element which makes them um, pleasant or unpleasant. Um, and that's a key distinction of emotional mental states compared to, for example, cognitive or information processing states, which may be much more neutral. And this aspect of emotions is called valence. So valence is how positive something is or how negative it is. It is. So a mental state in the human which has this property is something which we call an emotion or an affective state, or it can be called a mood. And there is a distinction between emotions and moods in that emotions are often thought of as short-term reactions to particular events. So these can be a positive event to being startled um, by a predator in the woods. So you have a negative fear-like response, or it could be a positive response to be seeing a friend of yours after many weeks of lockdown, for example, um, which is uh, a positive um, short-term response in those situations. So emotions are often thought about as these short-term states. Moods, on the other hand, are longer-term states like um, depression or anxiety, um, for example, which go on for much longer periods of time and aren't linked to a particular event in the way that emotions are, but seem to be a result of experiencing uh, a number of short-term emotions across time. So if you're exposed to lots of negative things that happen to you, so you have lots of negative events um, uh, and negative emotions, then you have a more, you're more likely to develop a negative longer-term mood as a result of that. So there are these emotions and moods, short and longer term affective states, affective states being things which are positive or negative, valenced, um, as we, we call it. And um, the emotions themselves have lots of components. Um, so they have a feelings component, and that is the subjective experience of feeling fearful or happy, joy, guilt, and so on, which is what we think of as the emotion, uh, colloquially. But of course, that's the subjective feeling, which is quite difficult to um, measure. Almost people would say it's directly, it's not possible to measure this directly in other species because it's a conscious state which is not accessible to us. We don't know for certain what other individuals are experiencing at any one time in their head. They can report it to us linguistically, but we don't know for certain if they're actually feeling happy or sad. We just have to take it on the basis of linguistic report and an interpretation of their behavior. So likewise with animals, we have to try and somehow 
have indirect measures of these emotional feelings. And these can be behavioral changes, like changes in expression or posture or expression of abnormal behavior. And they can be physiological changes, they can be cognitive changes. And it's these measures that we can use in animal research to try and get a handle on the emotional or um, mood state of an animal. Thank you. That's really, really interesting and very important to have. Like you say, it's very complex. It's very broad. There's a lot of things here. We could have a podcast every week with you, I'm sure, uh, to really like build it slowly. Uh, obviously, we're not going to do that. I know you're way too busy for that. But maybe you have a lot of different types of publications, um, you know, things revolving around cognitive bias and affective states or, you know, cognitive bias as an indicator of animals' emotions or measuring. Can you talk a little bit about some of the methods that you have tried to, you know, that you've used to try and understand what animals may be experiencing? Yes. So um, you know, one thing we've done quite a lot on is this thing called cognitive bias, as you mentioned. And when we were initially thinking about how we might try and develop measures of animal welfare, which focus on animal emotions, um, Dr. Liz Paul and I, and Dr. Liz Paul is a psychologist, and we worked together and, and she and I were thinking about the sorts of things that you might measure in humans to indicate uh, particularly a positively or a negatively valent state, so positive mood or a negative mood. And one thing from the human psychology literature, which is quite clear, is that um, people who are in a more negative state tend to um, have negative biases in a variety of cognitive processes. So they will more readily detect threatening events than people who are happier. So they seem to have some bias to detection and attention to danger. Um, they will more readily recall negative memories than people who are happy. And they will also more readily make uh, negative predictions about the future and interpret ambiguous things um, negatively compared to people who are more happy. So, for example, if you present someone with a phrase like, um, the doctor examined little Emma's growth, then uh, a person who is in a more positive effective state is more likely to make a more positive interpretation of that phrase. So thinking of growth as, the, as little Emma's height, whereas someone who is maybe in a more negative state would be more likely to interpret that in a more negative way and interpret the term growth, for example, as something to do with a tumor or something um, bad like that. So we were particularly interested in, in this idea that positive and negatively, negatively valent states um, influence how individuals interpret ambiguity. So positively valent people are more, if you like, optimistic about what an ambiguous thing means and negatively valent, people in a negatively valent state um, in, a, in a more negative mood are more likely to take a pessimistic view of what an ambiguous thing means. And so we wanted to develop a method which we could apply to animals, which would allow us to measure this cognitive thing, how animals judge ambiguity, um, either as positive or negative, um, as an indicator of whether they are in a positive or negative emotional state. Um, so we felt that if we could do this um, a, a cognitive measure, which one can do quite objectively, we could then use it to infer um, the animal's um, effective state, whether it's in a positive or negative effective state. And of course, from a welfare perspective, a key thing is to know whether an animal's effective state is positive, whether they're in, if you like, a happier state or negative, whether they're in a, a, a less happy or unhappy state. Thank you so much. And when you are studying this, which species have you worked with? Um, and does it, can you study a wide variety of species or is it just mammals or um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so um, I pro probably best to say how we try and then measure optimism and pessimism or, or positive and negative interpretation of ambiguity in animals to start with. Um, and then talk a bit about cross-species use of the test. And we started this work um, when we were working on laboratory animal welfare um, with rats. And basically what our task involved was to train a rat that, for example, a cue, for example, a tone, a sound of a particular frequency would predict something nice happening, like a food uh, pellet would be delivered. 
And to get that food pellet, the rabbit, uh, the rat would have to perform a particular uh, action like press a lever or press the left lever and when it heard the positive tone and it would get the food as a reward. Um, and on other trials, it would hear a different tone of a different frequency and it would have to press a different lever, say the right lever, in order to avoid a negative thing happening in that case, for example, um, a, a burst of white noise. So we were basically training rats that when they heard the positive tone, they needed to make one action to get something positive. And when they heard the negative tone, they needed to make a different action to avoid something negative. So that was the basic basis of the test. The animals would be trained on these two actions. And once they were trained to discriminate the tones, in this case uh, for the rats, we could assume that when they made the positive response in, uh, to a tone that they heard, that would suggest they were anticipating the positive outcome. Whereas if they made negative tone, uh, negative response to the tone they heard, they were anticipating the negative outcome. And once they learned this, we could then, of course, occasionally drop in intermediate tones, which were intermediate in frequency between the positive and the negative tones. So these tones are ambiguous. They don't have a clear meaning to the rat because they, the rat's been trained on the positive and negative tones. And so the question then is, what response does the rat make um, to those ambiguous tones? Do they make the positive response, which in, indicates that they're interpreting them in a more positive light, they're expecting reward, or do they make the negative response, which indicates they're interpreting them in a more negative light and they're expecting a negative outcome, like a burst of white noise. And what we found in our original study was that animals um, housed in unpredictable environments, which generate sort of mild levels of stress, were more likely to interpret these ambiguous tones in a negative way, which was support for the idea that in animals, as in humans, um, animals in more negative states make more pessimistic or negative judgments about ambiguity. ambiguity. So that was in line with our predictions. It was quite an encouraging first finding. And this approach has now been used in uh, over 140 different studies in many species. So I think one useful thing about this approach is that it can be used across species. You can train lots of different species on these tasks and then look at how they respond to ambiguous um, cues. And we've done a couple of recent meta-analyses of the data from these studies. And they show that the overall effect seems to be present. Um, it's a uh, small to moderate effect size across studies. Um, so animals who are thought to be in more negative states make more pessimistic interpretations of ambiguity than those who are in more positive states as predicted. But there is quite a lot of variation in the results. So, you know, it's not, all, not all results, not all studies generate the same results. So we need to still further understand exactly how effective states relate to performance in these tests and to optimistic or pessimistic judgments of ambiguity. But these studies have been done in, as I said, quite a number of species, including insect species, interestingly, um, bees in particular, uh, which have shown uh, similar results actually to the mammalian um, studies. That's really fascinating. We'll definitely have to add some links for people who are interested to look further into this topic. And are there perhaps also other tests that you could highlight or other, you know, methods, cognitive methods or others that have been used to try and understand these, um, you know, emotions, affective states in animals? Or is this pretty much the only one that people are using? No, this, this, this method has been used a lot. Um, but there are other versions or other versions of cognitive bias tests, which um, have also been used. And one issue with the method I've just told you about is it requires to train the animals on the, um, the initial cues that one's using, so the positive tone and the negative tone. And that can take quite a lot of time and it does make it more difficult to use this approach in the field. Um, although we have used it, or colleagues of mine have used it in uh, on wild animals like peccary in Brazil. But, um, other approaches which have been used by other researchers um, like Emily Bethel, um, who's a primatologist, have looked at attention biases. As I mentioned earlier, um, people in negative states tend to more um, rapidly detect threat. Um, and it makes adaptive sense that they would 
make threat, uh, make a, a, a rapid detection of threat um, so as to protect themselves if they're in a negative state which has been induced by other um, negative things happening to them. And she's, uh, Emily Bethel has, has adapted this study uh, approach to rhesus monkeys, so presenting them, for example, images of um, other monkeys which are making threat faces or making neutral faces, and just seeing if individuals um, divert their attention to the threat face or the um, neutral face, depending upon their um, background affective state. And, and she's found that, for example, monkeys who've just been um, exposed to a veterinary investigation, which is rather stressful for them, subsequently will show um, uh, increased detection of these negative faces. They'll preferentially look quickly at the negative faces, although they will hold their attention there much for a much shorter period of time than animals who are in a neutral state. And this is similar to human findings that people in negative states often will detect threat quickly, but then they will avert um, their gaze or stop attending to the threat more quickly too. So those results are quite interesting um, and similar to the human study results. And the benefit of this um, attention bias task is that there's not so much training required with it, um, but it's also dependent quite a lot on vision. Uh, so some animals are less visual and um, using it than those animals is more difficult. So that's one other um, way of doing uh, this sort of cognitive bias approach. And there are a variety of other sort of cognitive related measure, measures, including um, the expression of anticipatory behavior in response to a reward. And these studies indicate or suggest that animals who are in mildly stressful states actually show increased anticipation of reward um, as measured by um, changes in behavioral activity as the unannounced reward approaches. So a, a sound which sounds for 20 seconds, signaling delivery of reward. Animals who are in a more negative state or, or mildly negative state show a lot of um, agitation and preparation for that reward to arrive compared to animals who are in a more neutral or positive state. But also if animals are in a very negative state, uh, have been uh, in a negative state for many uh, days in a chronic negative state, then you also see a decrease in response, like an anhedonic response to the announcement of reward. And that work has been done by Dutch group, um, Barry Sprout and colleagues um, did that uh, some time ago. Yeah, lots of different studies. And of course, you know, people listening, they you know, wonder how all these studies are done. And of course, you know, there's lots of questions to be asked, but, you know, it's also very important to, to know that, you know, studies that are done in universities and in many other places, they have, you know, a lot of different procedures and protocols, ethical approvals, you know, there's a lot of, you know, communication and description around what is uh, done with, with animals and for how long. And, and of course, as you mentioned also, there's a lot more research happening in the positive um, you know, emotions and positive condition states and looking at you know, not necessarily only the, the, the lack of negative, but really look at you know, the opportunities for animals and positive experiences that they could have. So, and that is of course something that is important and also to look at how may this information help us when we're trying to think about, you know, the environments that animals are in or how humans interact with animals. So there's lots of, lots of questions there and lots of opportunities for us to engage deeper into this topic. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you're absolutely right. That um, if, if these studies are done on experimental conditions, they're obviously very tightly controlled. And as you say, many of the studies of cognitive bias that um, we've been involved in and others have been involved in have involved a positive manipulation, often environmental enrichment, for example, to see whether environmental enrichment can have the beneficial effects that um, other indicators suggest it, it has. And also quite a lot of studies look at individual differences. So animals who may be um, showing more or fewer or more abnormal behaviors, do they also differ in how they um, perform these cognitive bias tests? And um, animals um, who are in situ in environments outside the lab, for example, some wild animal studies in, in zoo type environments or in environments in uh, captive situations, um, uh, uh, for example, the peccary in Brazil or farm animals on farm. Um, there's also been 
the studies looking at whether these methods can be used to assess their effective states too in those contexts. Yes, and I think it's also so important, like you, you know, really well explained all these differences between, you know, emotions and moods and, you know, the longer term states of animals, depression and anxiety, this kind of accumulative effect, which is really important when we're thinking about caring for animals and environments that animals are in, you know, is this a short term thing or, you know, how can we avoid uh, working in animals uh, in a certain way or, or, providing environments that are in a certain way that can, you know, reduce these uh, negative, you know, longer term uh, moods in animals. So it's, it's really important. And also if, you know, maybe you're working with a species that these studies haven't been done on, but maybe there's closely related species or from similar taxa. So how can you then, um, you know, kind of think about, well, what th might this mean for the animals that I'm working with, even though maybe the research hasn't been done yet. Uh, and maybe you're the, the one uh, maybe engaging together with scientists who have studied this uh, to study that in your species. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity here for us to, um, and as you say, you know, the, the, we are concerned about how the animals, um, you know, are feeling what they are experiencing. So obviously we are wanting to pay attention to that as much as possible in all the things that we do in the ways that we care for them wherever they are. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, also about, you know, emotion or affect and consciousness and, and some of the, the descriptions around that, please. Yeah, so this is the tricky thing about measuring um, emotion and, and, and thinking of emotion as a key determinant of welfare. So obviously, if we take that view, which I think quite a lot of people do, that, um, uh, as I said before, the, ex the ability to experience happiness or sadness and uh, uh, fear, anxiety, um, excitement, all these things are key determinants of welfare, then obviously what we really want to know is what the animal's conscious experience is. Um, but of course, at the same time, as I said before, it's very difficult to uh, get inside the head of another human, let alone a different species and to know exactly what they're feeling at any one time. So this is a consciousness problem. So that the conscious experience of other individuals are not directly accessible to us, or at least um, that's, the, that's the stance taken by many philosophers and scientists that as third person um, observers we can't get inside uh, what's going on in another individual's head there are other philosophical um, a, approaches to that so Francois Vemosfelder who's a well-known welfare scientist argues that you can um, understand animal subjectivity through looking at the expressive behavior of animals so that's a different approach and she argues that then if you see the, the, how animals express their behavior, that's giving us a direct insight into their um, subjective states and experience. But if we um, take the sort of standard view that conscious experience is, is essentially not direct, directly accessible to us um, because what's going in another individual's head or another animal's head is, is private, um, then we need to try and understand um, what, what that might be through these proxy measures like cognitive bias or many other welfare indicators that people use. And um, of course, it's difficult to know for sure whether our indicators are picking up on what's happening in other individuals' um, heads, what they're feeling. Uh, and one approach we have taken to this in our work has been to do studies in humans too. So using our cognitive bias approach in humans and seeing how that links to their reported conscious experience, their, their reported states, because of course humans um, can report at least linguistically of what they're feeling to us, which is the most direct measurement we can have of what's going on in somebody else's head through this linguistic report. They can say, I'm feeling happy today, or I'm feeling a bit sad today, or I'm feeling a bit um, guilty or whatever. So they can, uh, they can tell us what they're feeling and we can then um, relate that to performance in these tests. And, and, and a number of these studies have been done with humans and suggest a, a sensible link between or, or, or a predicted link between the cognitive bias that's been shown in our task and human reported effective state, which is quite reassuring. Um, 
And that suggests that maybe that's one route where we can try and get more at what these tests may be telling us about conscious experience through using humans as a model, if you like, a model species. But of course, to know whether other animals are conscious requires lots of other sorts of study. Um, so some researchers look at the sort of brain functions of animals and see whether they might be um, doing uh, consciousness in the same way that humans might do. So in humans, human consciousness research is a big area of research where people look at, uh, for example, um, they search for neural correlates of consciousness. So when uh, a visual image is reported consciously by an individual, can one see a neural signal in the brain which suggests that's um, a correlate of that conscious experience versus when it's not reported. And there've been similar animal studies which have looked at that in the past in, in completely different area consciousness studies. And then there's also behavioral things which um, people look for. So whether animals can have episodic memories, so whether, whether they can have memories of specific events that happened to them, if you like, what, what that happened, where they happened, where that happened and when they happened, that happened. That's very similar to uh, the notion we have of memory, of a, of a visual memory of what we were doing this morning, what we had for breakfast this morning, what we were doing yesterday, and we can have these sort of visual experiences. Um, and so if animals can be shown to have what, where, when memory like that, episodic memory, then maybe that suggests they may also have um, a conscious cognitive component of that memory as well, which suggests consciousness. And there are other sorts of a method we can do to try and infer consciousness in other species like um, studying what's called metacognition, which is an animal's ability to know what it knows, to know it has a bit of information and to be able to demonstrate its knowledge of that information. And they're quite complicated experiments done by cognitive scientists to try and see whether animals might have um, uh, this conscious experience or conscious phenomena that humans have too. So the whole area is very interesting and very exciting, but also very difficult um, to make completely conclusive um, uh, uh, judgments of what's going on. But there's a lot of work in um, consciousness studies now. It's increasing animal consciousness studies are increasing a lot. And if we can show that there's a lot of evidence that animals are consciously aware, which many people accept for mam mammals and birds, and there, there's been a declaration made by scientists several, several some years ago, the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness, which um, said there was enough evidence from these sorts of studies that mammals and at least mammals and birds and likely cephalopods have um, conscious experience. Then if we can uh, we can accept that, then we can assume then that if we are measuring emotional states, there is some sort of conscious component too in these species. The question comes more difficult when we go to different species like uh, different taxa, like um, insects maybe, um, and other invertebrate taxa where there's still quite a lot of argument, um, but certainly quite a lot of interest in insect consciousness too. And there've been recent studies and arguments for and against um, uh, the, the ability of insects to have conscious experience. And likewise, uh, in some vertebrate species, there's also ongoing arguments about whether, for example, fish can feel pain, as you're probably aware, there's lots, these lots of arguments about this. And some people say, Absolutely, of course they can. Other people argue that they don't have the neural apparatus to experience pain. So you can see it's a complicated area, but an important one, um, which I think many animal welfare researchers would, would um, give the benefit of the doubt without, without a question to most mammal and bird species. Um, the question is becoming more, more complicated with invertebrate species and, and less clear. Yes, it's all very fascinating. It's, it's not an area that I am very well versed in uh, to the extent of all the things that you're talking about. And sometimes when you're at conferences or when I'm at conferences, I should say, or at, you know, reading papers, then, you know, reading about how brains differ between, you know, different taxa and, you know, how, you know, those different animals might still be able to do things even though their brains look different and there's just so many things there that all come into play i'm sure to really try and understand how does you know this translate for you know the effective states or for the consciousness for that particular species um, or breed does it differ there or yes there's just so many things there that are very very interesting uh, for people who are you know interested in this field we'll make sure also to link to the declaration of consciousness and, mm -hmm. uh, and some other links that people can explore yeah yeah 
Can, can you talk a little bit about, um, you have a lot of different papers as I was preparing for this uh, podcast. I was like, oh, what are we going to choose from? Because <laughs> there's so much there. But uh, we're also very much looking at, you know, what is out there? What have we learned through science? And how can we maybe um, look at some of this and think about, okay, so how could this, you know, be relevant when we are caring for animals, for example, in zoos and aquariums? Um, and you have worked a lot on different farm animals or rats and others, uh, but also on some, some um, exotics. But uh, one of the papers that I noticed was about lateralized behavior as an indicator of affective states in dairy cows. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what that means and um, yeah, what did you find? Yeah, so this I guess this is another sort of cognitive related measure. And again, it's based... Um, on human findings in the first instance. And from humans, there's some indication that when people process novel or threatening information, um, there's, there's a tendency to, for more processing to go on in the right hemisphere. So the brain is divided into two halves, the right side and the left side, which communicate with each other, of course. Um, and um, a variety of studies have suggested that people exposed or um, experiencing negative or novel stimuli tend to be using more of the right hemisphere to process that, the information, whereas people exposed to more positive things tend to use the left hemisphere. And this is a generalization, of course, but it's a, a finding which has been replicated in a, a variety of studies. And so there's this hypothesis that um, positively valenced um, stimuli are processed more in the left hemisphere and negatively valence stimuli processed more in the right hemisphere. So there's been quite a lot of interest in animals as to whether one might see a similar um, bias again. So you could then look at how an animals process stimuli as an indication of their emotional or affective state. Do they show evidence of using the right or the left, left hemisphere? And this study we did on cows was to look at this to see whether we could do something in situ. So you're right that um, some of these measures um, are presently not very easy to translate into a, a, a small real-life context. But with the dairy cows, um, we tried to set up something which we could use in their home environment to assess whether they show this lateralization of response to novelty, um, which might um, reflect affective state. Because the other um, interesting thing about this idea is that animals who are in a more negative state um, are predicted to use their right hemisphere more to process information than animals who are in a more positive state who should predict their, uh, should use their left hemisphere to process information. So in this study, we had cows <clears throat> exiting the milking parlor down a raceway. So they all walked through this raceway one by one. And we simply put in new, new stimuli to the left and to the right as they walked through the raceway. So we put up boards, for example, which had a particular pattern um, at the end of the raceway, one on the right, one on the left, exactly the same um, stimuli. And, uh, or we dangled something down like a Kong, um, which a dog would play with, for example, from the middle of the raceway. And we just looked at how the cows orientated towards these stimuli as they walked out of the, out of the milking parlor every day. So it's very easy to collect data, didn't involve doing anything to the cows. And what we were linking um, their behavior to was was lameness to see whether animals who are more lame and hence um, likely to be in more pain would show uh, evidence of processing these new images and the, these new stimuli more with their right hemisphere so would they use the left eye more to look at them um, we didn't actually find that so we didn't find a clear uh, relationship between um, a lameness score of the cow and how they looked at these new stimuli as they went out of the raceway after being milked. Um, but we did find some interesting, interesting findings, which were sort of in line with what we might expect. So animals who seem to be very bold and not affected at all by these new stimuli tended to use the right eye more to um, look at the stimuli suggesting the left hemisphere. So regarding them as relatively unthreatening, maybe even positive. Whereas animals who are much more hesitant to come down to look at the stimuli as they moved out of the race, down the raceway and sort of stopped and looked at them, they were more often using um, their left eye um, than the non, more often than the non-hesitant cows. And the left eye would suggest maybe using the right hemisphere more. So we found that interesting finding, which suggests that this maybe has some potential as a 
simple measure one could use if one could automatically record, for example, where the animals are looking as they come out of the, of the raceway each day to provide some indication as to whether they're in a more positive or negative state. So it's a, a simple measure, measure, doesn't involve any training or anything, and um, um, looks takes on board this hypothesis from human studies to do with naturalization of brain hemisphere use for processing information. Yes, so this is really interesting and it reminds me like, and I could be completely wrong, I'm just kind of, as I'm listening to you, I haven't read this particular paper yet, but as I'm listening to this, I'm wondering also, because you talked about personality in the animals and then the novelty and sometimes when it comes to environmental enrichment, we kind of sometimes assume that enrichment is going to be when it's new and is you know, something different and it's going to be positive. So, you know, that that might play uh, up because it might not actually be positive to see something new. And, you know, especially it, it reminds me of some of the the work of, of Temple Grandin who talked about these things, you know, hanging around and things that the cows pay attention to that uh, that others might not necessarily pay attention to. Um, but then I'm also thinking if we would then train the animals to, you know, if you're kind of using it to see, or you were trying to use it to see whether it would give you some sort of feedback on what, how the animals were doing, whether if you would train the animals, then this Kong to associate the Kong with something positive or, you know, something else, um, would that then perhaps overshadow or block some of these? Um, or do you think, obviously when it comes to pain, then, we could expect perhaps that even mm. if it's a positively trained Kong, if the pain is painful enough, then that is not going to be. Um, but all these things, I guess, come into mm. play, which are important for people to consider when they want to do anything into this sphere or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point that um, obviously if you, for an environmental enrichment perspective, if you put novel things in, they may initially certainly be threatening um, and, um, the novelty itself by itself is generally a bit um, generally animals are sensible to be a bit wary of novelty um, I guess what one would expect was would be over time when they find that these things are pretty benign they would habituate pretty rapidly to them so it might not be a, a huge problem um, uh, and hopefully it wouldn't be a huge problem in terms of trying to sort of give these things some value by for example pairing the Kong or touching the Kong with some reward that's an interesting thing that would, I'm sure, increase um, frequency of touching the Kong um, and um, override, it probably would override any propensity of the animals to, to look um, at the uh, stimulus with the, with the left eye, the right hemisphere, if you like, as treating as novel, but actually may in fact need to the opposite that they would be more likely to look at it with the, with the right eye indicating left hemisphere ac activity. And so you might actually change the way in which they perceive that or, or they regarded that object if you were rewarding it too. Um, so yeah, you could do that certainly. I think these tests though, are best done with something a bit novel to try and look at the animal's response and with a prediction that those animals who are in a more positive state are more likely to treat them um, as benign and um, look at them more with their uh, right eye or left hemisphere activity. Yes, yeah. And, and I can see that, of course, for systems that are animals, that animals are in where you want to, like, understand, are they in pain or, you know, are they lame? Um, it also just, you know, thinking about what you talked about earlier about this, you know, if you are in a negative state, then you actually looking forward to, um, you know, this reward coming. Mm. So that kind of, I guess, combination of what you just talked about. Um, yeah, it's just super interesting. <laughs> yeah, let's just move on to the next uh, uh, question because otherwise we'll, we'll be here for a long time. Um, thank you so much. So one of the other papers that you have um, on your extensive list is about the white-lipped peccary, which is in collaboration with others. Um, mm. can, can you talk a little bit about uh, that paper on trapping and information-making? Yeah. Yeah, so this was done with our colleagues, um, Selene Noguera and Sergio Noguera, who in, are in Brazil at, um, at the, the University Estadual de Santa Catarina. Um, and 
they're in um, Bahia State and they work with peccary, which is sort of wild pigs, small wild pigs. And they do a lot of work with them in terms of conservation issues, but also in terms of pests, because peccary are a bit of a pest species in Brazil. So they um, study them in a variety of different contexts. And as part of studying, one needs to trap them occasionally to mark them or to um, weigh them if they're, if they're in a semi-natural environment. And the aim of this study was to look at how trapping affects um, the welfare, the ways of doing trapping affects their welfare. And they actually did use a cognitive bias study. So this is, again, something that's quite common in cognitive bias studies is that people capitalize on things that are going on in the animal's environment. Um, whether they've been enriched, for example, in a farm environment, or they've just been exposed to a particular husbandry treatment, and look at the effects of that on the performance of the cognitive bias test. And in this case, what happened was that the animals were trapped um, for inspection, and then released, and their cognitive bias was measured. And um, the study was quite interesting. It found that on a baseline day before trapping, um, the animals would treat ambiguous cues again they were sounds as being sort of intermediate they would show 50 percent positive and 50 percent negative on average responses to these ambiguous cues um the and the training had been on rewarding for food and uh, i think avoidance of um a negative a, a, a noise i think in that in that study um but the interesting thing was on the day of trapping following a trapping event and when you presented an ambiguous cue, the tone, the, the peccary were much more likely to avoid, show negative response to it, um, indicating that the, the trapping generated a more negative state as they expected. And um, on the day after, when we went back to baseline again, then the animals treated the ambiguous cue as being more intermediate again. So there's quite a nice, clear effect of trapping. So the method of trapping they were using obviously was generating some sort of negative affect as judged by this test at least. So that was an example, I guess, of using the test in an environment which was fairly naturalistic uh, and then trying to use it to then think about how the test, the, the trapping method could be perhaps um, changed a bit to make it less stressful. Yes, wonderful. I think those things are so important when we're thinking about, you know, whether it's interacting and studying animals in the wild or you know, wild animals in human care is to really look at, you know, almost like the the third R, the refinement in the sense of how can we make the things that we do less stressful, make them more positive, uh, or how can we tweak, you know, our care efforts so that it's um, really, you know, as good as it can be based on our practice and our science. So that's just really wonderful to hear um, mm -hmm. about this study as well. And you also have worked on large lemurs. And can you talk a little bit to that study? Yes, yeah, so this is a diff very different approach. Um, so this study um, was using an approach which was developed by um, Georgia Mason at the University of Guelph um, some years ago now, which is to try and use a comparative approach to assess what animals may be more suited to captivity based on their ecology. And so in this study, which Georgia and Innes Cuthill and I were supervising PhD student Emma Meller here at Bristol together, um, Emma did a study in which she um, looked at lemurs in captivity. And lemurs in captivity are particularly prone, it seems, to um, obesity or being overweight. And what Emma was trying to do using this approach was to see whether any aspects of the different species ecology predicted how vulnerable they were to becoming overweight in captivity. So for example, um, how, uh, how, how nutrient dense um, the animal's usual food source in it, is in its natural world, um, how variable the availability of food sources in an animal's natural world, its natural ecology, do these sorts of factors predict the likelihood of those species then becoming um, overweight or not in captivity? And basically through the comparative approach that uh, Emma took and which is based on George's um, methods which were developed in this area, um, we found that uh, a key thing which showed some predictive um, value was the, um, the amount of unpredictable wild food that the species was exposed to as measured by variation in rainfall um, across 
years. So basically what she found was that those species who um, are, likely, are likely to experience quite a varied rainfall because of their particular um, niche, habitat niche and the ecology on Madagascar, they seem to be more prone to developing obesity in captivity than those who experience a more a less variable rainfall. And the inference is that the variable rainfall leads to um, uh, quite a season-to-season -season variation in food food supply and leaves and so on for the for the lemurs and fruit and and therefore um, those species who are experiencing a much more varied food supply are pre-adapted, if you like, by their ecology to store up on food more. So in captivity, when they're giving much more nutrient-dense food than they would normally in the wild, they those species are more likely to eat a lot um, uh, because it's something that they're pre-adapted to do given their species ecological niche and therefore they become more vulnerable to being much more overweight than other species who weren't exposed to such a variable food environment in the in the wild. So this was a, this was a trend. It wasn't a it wasn't a, a very strong result, but it was interesting to see that. And this is just an interesting approach, which I think can be used to ask whether particular species are more or less well adapted to being housed in captivity and more or less likely to develop things like abnormal behaviours, or in this case, to eat more than they might be they might be uh, they may may be good for them and therefore whether there should be some management introduced to try and minimize the effects of these things on on these different species according to their species ecology yes absolutely such a great example again of you know when we're talking about species specific nutrition you know all these details that come into play and certainly also you know geographical area because in many places where lemurs are housed in human care you know, we get the fruits and other, you know, items that they eat from our local markets and supermarkets and, you mm -hmm. know, and not necessarily the wild fruits and the, yes. they look <laughs> so different, the content is so different. And it's really wonderful that so many various zoo associations and other committees are really, you know, nutrition committees, they're just dedicated to this. And I'm sure they have already looked at this paper and you're doing so many different things as well with, you know, with lots of people around the world. And today we won't talk about it in, in detail, but you have worked on infrared tomography and um, individual behavioral differences on the golden headed lion tamarins. But of course we're going to connect with your collaborators and hear all about that in another podcast, because we are coming almost to the end of this podcast and we have a few questions left and one of them is about some of the work that you have around revolving the topic of do animals live in the present and um, current evidence and implications for welfare and why is this important? So that's a very interesting question again. Again, it's a question to do with cognition and um, there's there's... This relates again to animals' mental experience of the world, if you like. And you know, one thought is that, that many animals are locked in the present, if you like. So they they don't have huge episodic memory of what happened to them before. They don't future think. They don't um, predict what's going to happen to them. Um, or it's possible, and I assume quite likely, that they do actually have these episodic memories, and they can future plan too. And there's been this nice work I was referring to earlier particularly in bird species like um, Florida scrub jays, suggesting that um, the animals have the ability to have what, where, when memory and can even plan for the future in very clever experiments done by Nikki Clayton and her group in, in Cambridge. And this um, ability to mentally travel in time is something that's quite interesting. And in fact, the, in the UK um, in 1960s, there was something called the Bramble Committee, which actually was the... Um, progenitor of the five freedoms which looked at the housing of intensive uh, housing of agricultural animals in intensive conditions and boosted and, and prompted by Ruth Harrison's book Animal Machines published at that time and they one of the things that they wrote about in their appendix which was written by an ethologist called Bill Thorpe was about whether animals are stuck in the present or can mentally time travel because mental time travel could have quite a lot of implications for how they experience the conditions they're in and for their welfare. For example, animals who can mentally time travel and prospect into the future, expect things to happen, may 
be benefited by this. For example, they may be able to know that a routine procedure only takes 20 minutes or 10 minutes and then it'll all be over. Whereas for an animal which lives in the present, that seems like an interminable thing that's going to happen all the time until it stops. Um, but on the other hand, it may also be a negative thing for them. So if there's uncertainty about the future, animals who can prospect into the future may be much more likely to worry and show anxiety type of responses than those who live in the present. So it's quite an esoteric thing, but it's interesting that the Bramble Committee brought this up, and it's certainly an area of research where one might be able to understand more about the animal's experience of, um, for example, intensive housing in agriculture or zoo captivity um, in terms of whether they can travel through time um, mentally, that is, whether they can understand what's going to happen in the future, prospect into the future, remember the past and how that can then be used to um, enhance management. So if an animal is clearly able to prospect what's into the future and to and plan for the future, then I imagine making things more certain for the animal may be beneficial than to introduce lots of uncertainties, which the animal may then become more anxious about. So it's a, a, it's a fundamental thing and it's quite a high level cognitive ability. But if, um, many of our mammalian species have these abilities, then it sort of gives an insight a bit into what they might be experiencing in captive environments and um, potentially how this might affect how they are able to deal with those captive environments um, through their cognitive abilities to either travel through time mentally or not to be stuck in the present. So that, was, uh, that paper was really discussing this and the potential evidence for mental time travel in animals and um, the potential implications of that. Yes, I, it makes me think of, you know, a lot of the conversations that we have about, you know, what animals are experienced, who they connect to, who they bond with. And then, of course, perhaps for conservation reasons, animals in breeding programs move elsewhere. You know, how do they do they remember their life? How do they remember and do they miss you know, their care staff mm. or other companions in their group? There's so many communications that are falling into this sphere that are connected to this sort of time travel. And, yes. And it's certain, you know, from lots of discussions and, and stories of people that, of course, you know, care for the animals and maybe go and even look them up in the new facility and how animals, you know, find them, each other and, and the care staff again and, and really connect and pick them out of the, you know, the the audience and uh, and get really excited when they see them again and you just wonder like what is going on here and so there's so many of these these stories across all kinds of taxa that uh, yeah, yeah it's really important uh, to at least ask these sorts of questions and yes research. and i think sorry I, th I think one thing that these these studies do even if they can't be directly applied is they sort of just increase our understanding as you say of the animal's experience and that, you know, that has effects on how people perceive animals as well. So that has potential effects on attitudes to animals, knowing what, how com complex the animal's mental life may be, um, uh, can lead to attitude change amongst the public and so on. And I think so. I think these studies have value purely in that way, as well as potentially offering some practical um, solutions to issues or suggestions for refinement to, to husbandry. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, one of my final questions is about, you know, future directions in animal welfare related research. You already talked about so many different topics and methods. What are your, some of your visions or ideas around future directions? I think I've talked a lot about the sort of more cognitive things, which have been very, very, very interesting. And as I say, give us insight into the animals mind and um, how we might use that information to inform others and also to make practical changes but uh, a major area which i'm sure you're aware of which is developing in and particularly in farm animal welfare is is sort of using automation to try and detect things that are happening to animals um, on farms or maybe in zoos earlier than you would normally detect them um, so you can have use video to um, detect particular behaviors using computer vision approaches or um, machine learning approaches, and then alert um, human caretakers in advance to problems that are happening um, uh, and understand 
and predict and predict even outbreaks of um, undesirable events like an outbreak of tail biting on a pig farm or feather pecking in a chicken farm or disease outbreak. So I think that's quite an exciting area where it's very, in, in some ways, it's very practical um, because these systems could be, these systems once they're developed, obviously a lot of work needs to go into developing them and showing that the the video system or, or the monitoring system, wearable monitor, monitoring devices um, are useful at, at predicting um, the occurrence of welfare problems. But once that's been shown, then spinning this out potentially so that farmers or other people who look after animals can use them um, as indicators of impending issues to stop or indicators that a problem is there with a particular animal. I think that's very useful, particularly in, in um, situations, maybe not so much in zoos where there's much more individual attention from um, zookeepers and so on, but certainly where large groups of animals are kept together, um, potentially also for fish as well. And these, these approaches could actually be quite, quite beneficial and um, very useful and practically useful in the longer term. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that's very close to my heart is this 24-7 approach uh, across lifespan. And of course, we are not always there. Mm -hmm. um, to care for animals in zoos or sanctuaries or labs. So this idea of using video, which many facilities already do to kind of monitor what animals are doing, the times mm -hmm. that we're not there or how, you know, sleep and all the other aspects. Um, yeah, video is absolutely yeah. a super interesting tool. And I know some people have access, you know, via apps to look into the animal areas, even from their phones or their laptops, so they can check on the animals and also when animals are sick. So yeah, it's just a wonderful tool. That's really yeah. Good. I think I think of course because anyone who's done sort of behavior studies knows that coding video and looking through videos is a very time-consuming <laughs> activity. So so yeah. I think the exciting thing here with some of the things some of these approaches are the use of computer vision and machine learning to try and automatically detect from video. When things are happening, and that's you know that, that's that, that makes them a much more realistic and feasible tool, I think, for actually being used in real life to give early warnings of, of problems or monitor welfare in real time. Absolutely, yes. And you know, some people that are listening, they you know, working for facilities or students, they might be interested to start collaborating with your university or with your your team. Can they just email you or what's the easiest way they could reach out? Yes, yeah, sure. Email would be would be fine. Um, we're, we're always um, happy to talk with people who want to come and work, it, work in the group. Um, the usual thing, of course, is, is getting funding, but that's something that we can discuss, you know, with people who are interested in, in different areas. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think it's, it's great to have more people in, in the area. Um, funding the research is is something that obviously every research group um, has to deal with and as you know this is um, something that um, sometimes is, becomes easy sometimes becomes less easy depends on the environment at the time animal welfare still is is pretty fundable area in our country in the UK um, uh, and uh, of course there's increasing there's increasing interest in um, combining animal welfare studies with other things like sustainable agriculture and with automated detection. So you can roll up a lot of the work I was talking about earlier, automated detection, sustainable agriculture, animal welfare, you know, looking at things which may change carbon out, uh, footprint outputs. So you can, there's, there's a lot of interest in that sort of area where there is funding available too to combine animal welfare research with other sustainable sustainable questions in the agriculture area in particular. Excellent. So we'll add that information also to the podcast. And of course, you know, we are all about animal stories or perhaps a surprising finding or a personal story. So in conclusion of the podcast, do you have uh, a nice story to share or a surprising finding to share with us as we come to the end of this podcast? Well, I think I haven't really talked about pigs, which I've worked a lot on um, as in my earlier career when I moved into animal welfare area and they are very clever animals and they um, do some very clever things so um, there's apocryphal tales of them picking up electronic sow feeder collars which have dropped off another sow which have a little tag on them which um, uh, signals to the feeder who is to get their food at which time and some people have talk, talked about carrying them in, those, those animals carrying them in 
into the feeder to get somebody else's ration. I'm not sure that's true. I didn't observe that myself, but I did observe pigs being able to defeat many um, apparatus that we um, generated for them. So electronic sow feeders, you're meant to go through in one direction, at least the ones we were using. These are, these are single stations where animals get fed food um, they go in, they're identified by their, their collar um, tag or their ear tag, and the, the, the feeder dispenses them food into a trough and they eat that. Um, but I've seen many occasions when they managed to reverse out the wrong way, or animals have um, been uh, uh, pestering other individuals to leave this electronic sow feeder as they queue up outside, which does happen. There's a big queue forming outside for the next, per, next sow to use it. And I've seen many uh, intimidations of sows in there, um, which have been quite interesting to see. So you have a large dominant sow outside sticking its head over the top of the feeder and sort of screaming at the sow inside to get out. These are old systems. The newer systems are better than this. And um, I've seen occasions where those sows exit very rapidly, aren't intimidated. But before the big sow can get round the back, somebody else has nipped in. Um, in to take their place and so the large sow gets extremely frustrated and you can really see frustration in these animals then um, much more screaming and so on so they're, they're very aware of what's going on around them they can defeat these apparatus and they're very interesting animals to work with um, but I think the, the modern electronic sow feeders are much better designed to stop all these sorts of issues or minimize them but certainly when I was working with them at the beginning um, they were certainly generating lots of examples of interesting behavior in, in sows Yes, and I think you're making such an important point there that, you know, it's really interesting behavior. It's really, uh, you know, certain parts very entertaining to see how they, you know, try and manipulate each other or um, bully each other to a certain extent or mm. use somebody else's color to, you know, to get some food out. And at the same time, look at, okay, so what does this mean for the well-being of the animal? Mm. Can we make the systems better uh, so that we can reduce some of the frustration? So that's a really excellent yeah. story to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So thank you so much, uh, Mike, for coming on to the podcast and we'll make sure to link to your work and to, you know, other documents mentioned. And yeah, so hopefully hear you again in another podcast and uh, all the exciting work that you continue to do with your group. Thanks very much, Sabrina. It's been a pleasure. So that was the end of another podcast. Well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being and science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.